Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction and everything else. I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks rather a lot about science. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about King Arthur, possibly your favorite king, I don't even know, and the Holy Grail and the Sword in the Stone and Camelot and all that stuff. And it's going to be super exciting. And we're incredibly lucky to be joined by a very special guest, Tracy Dion, author of a brand new YA novel called Legendborn, which plays with Arthurian legends in a wonderful, delightful way. I'm super obsessed with this book, and I'm so excited to chat with Tracy. So let's get started. Tracy, let's just start off by talking about like the super basics of King Arthur. Like, is there any truth to the King Arthur story? And how did people come to be so obsessed with this particular medieval warlord instead of like any of a hundred other medieval warlords? Uh, yeah, the thing about legends and what makes them different than myths is that they do have a a historical kernel somewhere in there. And so there was a guy who. Uh, was a warlord who was very good at fighting. I think one of the first written mentions <laughs> right. is like, you know, but he was no Arthur comparing someone else to how they weren't, they would not stand up to the prowess of this one dude, Arthur. So, you know, I, I believe that there's a, um, a historical basis for King Arthur. I don't know if he actually existed. If he did, he didn't look like anyone we recognize today as King Arthur. So there's historicity. But yeah, you know, I, I think historians would argue a lot that there's really no, no fact, but there's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But so why did King Arthur become such a big deal? And like, there we talk a lot about the revival of King Arthur in the late 19th century. But what was King Arthur before the late 19th century? And when did when did it become such a big meme? Yeah, you know, there are two um, sort of worlds of Arthurian literature before Geoffrey of Monmouth in his his work, Historia, the, the historical account of Britain, um, which is not very, um, it's like a pseudo history. There's before that and then after. And the reason that people mark Geoffrey in that way is because he really did pull together what I consider to be the previous sort of traditions around Arthur, which may be oral, which may be written down, and put the ones he liked in the order that he preferred into this text and sort of mark it as the, this is part of the history of Britain as we know it. And mm-hmm. it was such a political act. I mean, really that type of creating a, a historical book that you know is not really true history, but putting all these stories in it and claiming it as such is such a political act, right? And I think that was his intention. I mean, I'm not a Jeffrey scholar, but the collection of it the story, some of the stories we know today are all wrapped up in that. I call that book really the, a massively influential piece of fanfic. Yeah, because um, he he definitely just pulled the parts he liked and rearranged them and made it what he wanted it to be. But it was it was compelling. Um, I think it gets to your question: is like, you know, that spirit of rearranging Arthurian legends because there really is no one legend. There's a uh, collection of legends. That spirit of rearranging and the freedom of sort of orbiting a you know, certain themes and certain characters is what I think has kept it alive because 
there's a sort of license built into Arthur. He resists a single story as a, as a matter of course. And I think that that makes him very fun to play with. And of course, a lot of the Arthurian legends are super episodic. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to add, just to build on what Tracy was saying about the history that's super interesting is that, you know, as she was saying, these were oral legends, you know, they were stories that people told kind of like fairy tales. And then once people started writing them down, it was in many places, like in England and in France or the places that became England and France, these were some of the earliest poems that were written in people's spoken language because Mm. The language of writing was Latin. If you were an educated person, you read and wrote Latin, and that was the official language of court documents and lots of other stuff. And so writing things down in English or in French was kind of a new idea. And it also speaks to the fact that these were kind of homegrown legends, right? These weren't things that we got from the Romans. Um, These weren't things that, you know, we, I say we, like as if I was there, Um, but these weren't (laughs) things that like were imposed by like imperial forces from Rome, for example. Um, These were things that people like living in those countries were telling each other. And so I think that's part of why the big explosion in Arthurian mythology was during the early Middle Ages, or really like, I guess, the middle Middle Ages before the 19th century, because that was a time when people were saying like, hey, maybe our our native languages are are worth preserving. You know, maybe, mm. maybe we're not just in the shadow of ancient Rome anymore. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's partly, that's a political act as well, right? So totally. it's totally, that's part of what the, the movement, I think there is a sort of a movement that that you can see forming around Arthur. Um, And also the ability to sort of self-insert as a nation is sort of not lost to me. Monmouth was writing in like the 12th century. And then you've got, you know, the French writer who created Lancelot was Mm -hmm. also just sort of asserting his Frenchness in the courtly, you know, the sort of courtly moors that were a big part of France at that time. These were definitely political stories. Absolutely. Yeah, you can have like nation Mary Stewing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> nation. Ma- oh my Mary god, Sue. I love that. I mean, <laughs> Arthur is the original like Mary Stew. I mean, he he has to be, or maybe that's Lancelot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the good ship Lancelot. <laughs> yeah. So we have a clip of John Borman, the director of the movie Excalibur, discussing why the Arthurian legends are still so important. Uh, this is actually an interview from the Cannes Film Festival in 1981 via INA Culture, and let's just run it. This story, which has been told perhaps for 2,000 years, and is really the power of it, I think, is because it's a, in a way, a kind of model of it's a model of the universe. It's um, the story of. Of, of civilization and I think that it reaches a certain point the point we've reached perhaps civilization and and the uh, Camelot and then they discover in the story Arthur discovers King that it is not the material life is not enough it then becomes in the quest for the grail becomes um, is really a, a, a search for a way to transcend the material and to find a spiritual. So yeah, I mean, what I get from that clip is that, you know, first of all, very grandiose, but second of all, it feels like he's really kind of saying in a way that like, 
the story of Arthur is the story of civilization and that it's the story of like nation building and creating governing institutions and like Camelot and the round table are these structures that people can belong to, or at least knights can belong to. That's kind of part of what he sees as the appeal of the story is that it's about building something. And do you think that there's some truth to that as far as why people still love Arthur so much? I think so. I mean, I, you know, I think about Camelot and I don't mention Camelot a lot in my book and that wasn't a a space that I was drawn to, which now I'm sort of wondering if I did that on purpose, you know, sort of like subconsciously, but uh, you know, the idea of Camelot of this place that is a just place where, you know, people are, are treating each other with respect and like, there's this idealism around the vision of this, of this kingdom. I think that that's definitely there. I mean, it's very romantic. All of these, a lot of these tales are quite romantic. And when they're not romantic, they're filled with like really steady beats of, you know, there's a a blow and then there is a striving toward, and then there's a triumph. And I think, you know, nations are really good about creating those types of narratives around themselves. And of course, you know, John F. Kennedy's White House was always called Mm. Camelot, Mm -hmm. you know. But Annalie, you had a theory as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of going back to what I was saying about how a lot of these early Arthurian poems were written in spoken languages. I think part of what draws us to these stories again and again is it's a kind of, it's a way of having a connection with our history. And I kept kind of mulling over, like, why was there a big explosion of these stories during the Middle Ages, during like 12th, 13th, 14th century, and then again in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries? Like, why do we, what is it about these times that have made us kind of want to come back to these ancient historic tales? You know, again, it's it's kind of what Tracy was saying about like, if you want to build a nation, it's nice to have a little story about it um, and to have a, a, an exciting romantic story, too, um, about a dude who's like really good with his sword or whatever. I also think that at this point, when we look back, this is just sort of like a moment of historical meta, because we're looking back at the Arthurian legends as a kind of pseudo history, right? So this mm-hmm. is like, we're kind of pretending like this is our history, you know, this great white king who like united everybody with his giant sword. But when we look back at those stories now, we're also looking at an ancient story itself. So you can go back and read like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight um, in the original Middle English, which is amazing. And which is written in the 14th century. And you're like bathing in history by doing that. Mm. You're hearing a story from history and it's a story about history. <laughs> so it's right. like a his- history within history, very meta. And I think it speaks to, we're in a very uncertain historical period right now. And I think we want to look back and say, all right, well, what were people talking about the last time we were in a really fucked up time in history when everything was changing? You know, when there was a great plague, for example, like that happened 14th century, right? right. When people were working on a lot of these um, Arthurian romances. So you know, I think I think we, in a weird way, we're we're kind of having a feudalist revival um, in our pop culture. And of course, the dark side of that is is that of all this sort of you know clinging to these legends in terms of uncertainty, and also the the nation building is is that you know white nationalists also want to seize King Arthur as a as a symbol. Like there was a, a the British National Party was holding a summer camp, which was described as a training ground for fascists, and they called it Camp Excalibur. And so you know it's like, how do we push back against this like you know attempt to claim medieval Europe and specifically King Arthur for white nationalism. You know, I, 
you know, in some of the research that I was doing, I came across medieval scholars, particular is one, Dr. Cord Whitaker, who writes a lot about this. Um, and he's a black scholar who's, who's talking about Arthuriana, but also just like the imagined medieval um, and how, you know, how that's been utilized. And I wish I could say very simply, we, we, we pull out our receipts and we, we pull out, you know, black people <laughs> existed in the medieval and like, you know, this person lived and all of that. But, but I think when you, when you're talking about Arthur, I keep going back now to what you're saying, Annalie, it's like, what, it, that doesn't matter actually. The, like that type of historical citation is not what Arthur's about. So it would be difficult, you know, not that I think we can really rationalize with white supremacists anyway, but like, it would be difficult to, to lean on it. So I'm, I don't, I think medievalists are doing their best. I think that it's happening in what you're, what you're describing is happening in their departments. It's happening here in the United States and they're doing their best with not just citations, but also um, raising voices and in, in interpretations and deep readings and close readings and banding together in real material current space to push it back. What we can do as a people, I don't know. I mean, hopefully, I like to think that creative work can start to do some of that as well. But yeah, when you're talking about a fanfic built on a fanfic built on a fanfic that right. said was history one time, like how do you even undercut that when the whole, the power is in the imagination? I mean, I guess you just hope that the modern fanfic crushes the old yes. fanfic the same yes. way the Britons crushed the Vikings at the Battle of Malden. <laughs> the fanfic <Wow>. wars, yes. <laughs> yeah, and- Sorry, that's a deep cut for like no. medievalists. <laughs> brilliant. I, I think you're right, actually. I'm just like, our fanfic is more powerful than your fanfic. Our fan and beats yours. I think we have- Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a huge fan of Dorothy Kim, who's another medievalist who's been pushing back really hardcore against this sort of white supremacist reading of medieval Europe and has gotten a lot of grief for it, unfortunately. You know, before we move on, it just, you know, we've been talking about King Arthur as fanfic hero and as the original Mary Sue. He's also kind of the original chosen one, right? He's like the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the original Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, you know? Does every one of those stories that we're currently obsessed with of like Obi-Wan Kenobi, is Obi-Wan Kenobi? be the original Merlin or sorry vice versa does every one of those stories go back to King Arthur in some way oh such a good question like uh, you know I um, we as humans I think we really do love this idea because what you're talking about is the sword and the stone variation Mm -hmm. of Arthur right there's so many different versions of Arthur there's ridiculous tales of Arthur just being like a total jerk for no reason and the other things where he's overly romantic other things where he's just fighting people but this specific story that you're talking about that the right person pulls a sword from the stone, that person shall be king. I really think that we are compulsively drawn to this idea that power can go to the right person. I find that incredibly seductive. Who is the right person? What is right? Always up for debate, very flexible, depending on who's telling the story. But I really think that people love that. And keep returning to the idea and it's an underdog story, right? It's underdog plus chosen Mm -hmm. one in like, Oh my gosh, like, I think we eat that up. <laughs> Especially when he starts out as Wart or whatever in mm-hmm. the, the T.H. White version or E.B. Yeah. White version, where he starts out as Wart and it's like he's just this scrappy little kid. And it just, yeah, I mean, it feels super powerful. 
he's the assistant pig keeper or whatever. <laughs> I'm getting him mixed up with with uh, the guy from Lloyd uh, Alexander. <laughs> Lloyd Alexander's Pride and Chronicles, but it's the same yes. kind of idea. No, it's exactly the same idea, right? It's it really the chosen one story like often starts with someone who has been brought low, but they don't deserve to be low. Right. You know, I want I want the story, you know, of the chosen one who actually is just lowborn, you know, like they really are just from the streets and like rise up to be a king. I guess there's those stories too, but, but there's definitely some of those and it's, that's not it's, quite the same. There's often some reason why they're the chosen one. That's like, you know, obviously they're chosen, but there's some, something in their past or something in their heritage or actually Lovecraft country, which we've just been watching has that thing where like uh, mm-hmm. Atticus is like the secret descendant of this, you know, evil wizard kind of. I wonder if this is why the Arthurian legends map so well onto white supremacy, because the chosen one has this pure blood, mm-hmm. you know, like it's all about oh, like, yeah. oh, you don't deserve to be down in the mud because you have this like king's blood in your veins that like unlocks the sword or whatever. I think that's a lot of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I play with that a little bit. Well, a lot of it in Legendborn. Um, and in this idea that power is actually in your blood and you can't, it can't be extracted. It's just, it is. And it's, it, it, it was even true before you were born. This type of, you know, the way that mm-hmm. that can get attached. And you see that sometimes too with, you know, fantasy. I, like there is something that still irks me to this day about any sort of story where it's just like, well, only the people who have that blood can have that power. Mm-hmm. Um, because what are we reinforcing in, you know, meat space? Yeah, I feel like there's been a really good critique of that recently. The idea that like some people are born magical and some people are just born not magical and there's mm-hmm. just nothing you can do about it. And one of the things I love so far about Legendborn, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, is the notion that there's different ways of being magical and that different traditions and that different people have it in different ways kind of mm-hmm. there's like there's ether magic and there's root magic which sorry that's a little bit of a spoiler <laughs> i mean i think the book kind of the, co- the book cover kind of teases it like you know that there's two things happening um but yeah i do think that the idea of power being something that you could and also there's i will say that white supremacy is so obsessed with sort of like anti-miscegenation you know this idea that you can like control the bloodline as well Mm -hmm. and i think the rest of us are all like yeah that's not possible but white supremacists like to think you can and that they they and i think that that thinking lends itself really well again to that sense of arthur of like if we just control it and keep the power isolated in these very specific ways and it you know it controls our women our women are no or you know all this stuff that we can uh, we can kind of I, pull it all together then we will maintain power over time um it's such arrogance and it's also so ignorant right because you really can't do that <laughs> no you really can't and it's super fucking disturbing mm-hmm. okay so we're going to take a really quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about king arthur in pop culture today like there's been a lot of King Arthur in pop culture recently. There's like the new Netflix show Cursed. There was Merlin a while ago. There's the kid who would be king. King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Soon we're going to be getting a new movie of the Green Knight. Why, why is there so much King Arthur stuff in pop culture right now? When we feel that we're in a, a sort of a difficult time in history, there is something so satisfying about locating yourself as being in history to be able to say, actually, 
this is a time in history, just like that back then was a time in history and we're all part of the same continuity. And sometimes those those are bad times. And over the course of hundreds of years, you can mark when there are bad times and there are good times, which means that this good time, this bad time is not singular and, and everlasting. So I think there is probably a little bit of that happening. Um, I don't know. Such you know, a cool our- way of putting it. I really liked what you were saying about the fantasy of, of power flowing to the right person, um, mm-hmm. which is such a, especially right now, since we're, you know, an election is coming up in our country and we're all kind of scared, like, will the power flow to the wrong person? And I wonder if that impulse to tell stories about how power can flow to the right person, I wonder if there's just something that's reactionary about that. Like maybe Mm. we should be trying to tell stories about how power doesn't ever belong to one person. You know, like you were talking about before, like maybe part of the problem with Arthurian legends is that it keeps training us to hope that like the right person will come along. And instead we should be saying, wait, maybe the right community should come along. Or Mm -hmm. maybe we should, um, (laughs) as they say in, um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Maybe we should have like, aren't they like anarcho syndicalists or something? Or like an anarchist collective or <laughs> yeah, whatever. The, yeah, the, the peasants are like, fuck the king. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do wonder about that. I wonder if that's part of the problem is that we keep coming back to that wish. Yeah, I was thinking about something I wrote in my author's letter this year, and it was about welcoming people to the round table. And oh, I love that. Yeah, I really love this idea. And of course, the round table is is probably the the most. I mean, aside from the magic, the magic sword, but like probably the most like you know the most ridiculous sort of concept that we bend however we want it to be. Because at some point there was like 150 nights, and other times there's 13, and obviously that table would not be able to exist at 150 people. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It could have been like a stacked table. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like I'm like at this table outside. Like I just don't know like <laughs> yeah. how that happened. But um, but you know I love this idea of us all sitting around the round table, and I think that's the other romantic thing that probably certain people are really drawn to. I mean, I'm sure it's very interesting to me, the people who are drawn to that image versus Arthur. And I don't want to read too much into it because I don't think it's that quite two dimensional, but you know, a round table is a space where people can come together and represent all sorts of different perspectives and mm-hmm. have different strengths because the Knights all had different strengths, um, right. but they're at, they're equal at this table. And Arthur himself sat at the round table so that in that moment he was no better than them is a really beautiful notion. I feel like people cling to it sometimes. Yeah. I have a question for you guys, which is like the thing that's happening now with a lot of the Arthur adaptations. I mean, I should say Arthur in legend adaptations is that they're really focused on characters that are not Arthur mm-hmm. other than the Guy Ritchie movie, which was terrible. Um, uh, and made that no movie sense. disappointed um, me. Trash <laughs> King Arthur, you mean? Trash King um, Arthur? <laughs> are you a fan of Trash King Arthur? Um, I enjoy <laughs> Trash King Arthur for what it is. I think. I mean, um, it is sublimely bad. Like it is yes. definitely a so bad it's good. Yes. Yeah. It turns the corner. Kid Elliot loves that movie so much to never get into a conversation with her about it because she will just like she's a stan for that movie i mean it has some great moments it's just that it's it's just so it's just completely silly but i do love arthur as like an urban scrapper like i don't think we've had an urban arthur before which was delightful because of course there would have been cities um you know around but like there's cursed which is about the lady in the lake which when i first heard the log line for that i was like 
holy shit, I want to know about the lady in the lake. Like, that sounds great. Or Merlin. I liked all of the books in the Crystal Cave series. Mary Stewart, which are all about Merlin, came out in the 70s. So this is my question is which of which character do you guys kind of stand in the Arthurian universe? Like who's like of the shows that are out there or things that you'd like to see, like other than Arthur, who do you need to delve into more? I'm going to say a couple of names. I think, I think Morgana Morgane has never really been nailed. Um, Right. I, I think there's so much opportunity there. And I think we've, I encounter people just hitting the same note when it comes to that character. Um, And so I'm really curious about that um, and how that could be done. So that's definitely one. And I, you know, I kind of am leaning towards just like another night that it doesn't really get mentioned, like Kay or somebody, you know, just Mm -hmm. like somebody who, or Bors, um, even to some degree, Mordred, you know, like just one of the other nights that, is actually, if you go back in the text, has some richness, but we just don't see it these days. Yeah. I have a, a real thing for Lancelot because, you know, his whole thing where he's like messing around with Guinevere and he feels really guilty about it. And he kind of knows that he's destined to just, at least in some versions, he's destined to betray Arthur. And it just, I don't know, I, I have a, I, I kind of stand Lancelot a little bit. Uh, I also love Guinevere. I feel like there's some good versions where Guinevere is actually a total badass. And, you know, this is all making me want to rewatch the one Doctor Who episode that's about King Arthur, where like uh, Morgana is a total like psycho who tries to destroy the world with nuclear weapons. And it's just which doctor is this? This is the seventh Doctor. I know. I always have to bring up Doctor Who on this, <laughs> yeah, no, on this podcast. No. Every episode of the show contains some Doctor Who. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's called Battlefield. It's actually, I'm going to try to make Annalie rewatch it with me because it's actually kind of it. great. <laughs> it's kind of great. And it ends with like Morgana trying to like set off all the nuclear weapons on Earth in order to bring about like the apocalypse or whatever. And the trope of like Battlefield is that they're waiting for King Arthur and he never shows up. Actually, you know, slight segue of all the recent reimaginings of King Arthur, my personal favorite is from the other show that we always mention on this podcast, Legends of Tomorrow, where they go back to King Arthur and it turns out that King Arthur is just some lovable dope. And really the whole thing was like a superhero from the 1940s named Stargirl went back in time and became Merlin and created the round table in order to like do something. I don't remember. And Sarah Lance hooks up with Guinevere and it's just so delightful. It's just like, it's got, it hits all the right notes, I think. I kind of, I don't watch that show. I keep catching episodes because my partner watches. I might just have to, do you think I I can dive in? Skip episodes, skip the first season, skip the first season and then it's great. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But there's a whole lesbian Guinevere thing that's just like beautiful. And there's a Doctor um, Who connection, is there not? Like, we've got Rip, who's, who's Rory. Right, so. there is actually, Rip is in that episode, too, although he's temporarily evil. Anyway, whatever. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so It's a show. <laughs> we've actually got a clip from Cursed, the new Netflix show, in which Nimue, the Lady of the Lake, meets Merlin for the first time. You're him. You're Merlin. And you're the wolf blood witch, dreaded wielder of the devil's tooth. You're making fun of me. No. But you're playing a dangerous game, young lady. 
that's a good moment to kind of talk about like how do people approach the King Arthur story differently in like current pop culture. And I feel like we hit on one of the main ways already, which is that they focus on characters other than Arthur a lot of the time. But what else? I mean, I feel like Merlin is often really hot in Mm -hmm. like 21st century versions of this story. Like he's either like a cute teenager or he's just like a shirtless dude and cursed or I don't know. What else, what else do we do differently in like 21st century King Arthur stories? I think we have, tended to and like your example of legends is a good one i think we tend to show an arthur from a different perspective who is a, just like a dope mm-hmm. like i think we sort of embraced that and in the, the old stories have examples of that too but i think we sort of embraced the idea of like not only are we focusing on a different character but that character sees this side of arthur is is pre pre-noble Arthur, right? Mm-hmm. Like we we like to see that he's actually a dude. And I think that Cursed, I haven't watched it, but I feel like um, from what I'm hearing in the clips I've seen that that is, does not happen in Cursed. Like he's just like a dude. Like he's not, he's not Arthur yet. He's not the epic It's, it's yet. a prequel. So he's still kind of finding his feet. And I yeah. think it's, it's, he's just kind of there. I like that. I think that's, I think that's interesting. Um, Merlin, yeah. The hot Merlin thing. I mean, <laughs> Merlin is hot. Yeah. Like, the end, you know, yeah, he is. I mean, and he's Merlin is probably of all the characters in Arthuriana. He probably has the widest variance of depictions. Like he's been um, sort of a, a wild man in the woods. He's been a full on sort of antichrist even figure. He's the, he's a cambion. He's the child of an incubus and a, and a human woman. He's, He's a good guy. He's, you know, he's really been all over the place. So I do think that like we are, we are, we have not seen the last of the depictions of Merlin in all sorts of places. And I hope people go darker with it because I actually feel like Merlin is kind of a dark character and I hope they can, they continue to do that too. He's kind of the Spock character in a way, because it is making me think about how in like Star Trek now, Spock has kind of come to the fore as like a more important and interesting character Mm. to explore than Kirk, who's Mm -hmm. like obviously the Arthur, (laughs) (laughs) who's just sort of like punching people and, you know, (laughs) double fist punching people, Annalise. Double fist. Yeah. No, um, as we learned on Lower Decks. And uh, it does really intrigue me that like Merlin has become really a big focus. The other thing I was going to say about modern day Arthurian retellings is it makes me think of um, there was this cheesy Genghis Khan movie that came out like a decade ago. And the way that the movie is introduced because it was supposed to be this gritty, realistic depiction, and they called it the true story of the legend of Genghis Khan. (laughs) And (laughs) I feel like that's kind of what Guy Ritchie was doing in his King Arthur movie. I feel like a lot of these new depictions are supposed to be like the true story. Like he was really just a guy. He was just a scrapper. Like Merlin was just a alien from the future or whatever. Right. right? Like it's, it's always this kind of now we're getting back to the the real you know truth of this, which of course, as we've been saying, it's, it's a legend. So there's no real truth. So it's just, it's like uh, all fake news all the way down. <laughs> it is. Well, Arthurian it, fake news. Uh... <laughs> and, and 
this, the like the people who cling to the truth, like I really, you know, I feel like that actually goes back to this that conversation about white supremacy. It's just like you, you want there to be a singular truth, and you you keep hunting for it and digging for it, and not allowing that uh, that subjectivity is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that perspectives of one thing, multiple perspectives of one thing, can all be true at once. Wild, um, mm-hmm. you know. If you can't allow for the variations of experience in the world, then you're just gonna dig and dig and dig until you find the real true one and cling to that one. And I just feel it reminds me so much of people who just like, I find themselves just, who find themselves, you know, often citing canon and cannot release canon. Like they're so attached to a story that is the story that has the boundaries. And in this space, this is what's right and wrong and anything outside of that or this, when this writer took over Star Trek and we have like that was not really the true canon. And you know, this happens in Star Wars all the time. And I, I just liken it to that, that people are just searching for canon in Arthur and there is no real canon. There's it's all retcons. Work. It's all yeah, mm-hmm. it's all retcon. Like you could wait, who has the true Arthur? I don't even know. Like you'd have to go if you want to go back to that one mention I cited, that's the one we know about. But even that could be a repeat of a story because clearly that person already had heard of Arthur from somewhere else. So where you know, you could just you're gonna keep digging and just fall out the other side of the story. There's nothing. Just mm-hmm. em- embrace it. Embrace the narrative freedom. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is no original. There is mm-hmm. no canon. Nope. Yes. Uh-huh. All right, well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk all about one of the greatest adaptations of the Arthurian legend by Tracy Dion. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, I'm in the middle of reading Legendborn right now. It is just rocking my world. It's giving me so much life during like a really, you know, horrible time. And I just love this book so much. So Tracy, you know, what made you want to write a present day story that kind of centers on Arthurian lore? And like, how did you get into that? Because I know you didn't approach it head on. Yeah. So, I mean, I've always been a fan of Arthur. I, you know, I read The Dark is Rising. I talk about this a lot by Susan Cooper's series, contemporary fantasy series in the 70s set mostly in England, but a little bit in Wales where, you know, Arthur was born so much. Um, so, and I knew about it and I had sort of Arthur in the back of my mind from loving those books. But with this particular story, I really didn't start with Arthur at all. With Legendborn, I started with myself in a question, you know, the main character in Legendborn Bree has just lost her mother at the beginning of the book. And that was very much based on me. Um, I lost my mother at a young age. And within, gosh, like a couple weeks of that happening, I found out that she had gone through the same experience at my exact age, like within a couple months and lost her mother. So I never met my grandmother. And then I found out that that same thing happened to my grandmother. And oh, I'm a writer, right? And a, and a total geek, a second generation fangirl. And so I'm like, this is weird. Why would that happen? What sort of story would explain that? And so that's where I started really was what kind of story would make that make sense? And then I started thinking about, well, that's a story that the explanation is not available to me. And where else do we find that people's lives and losses are not documented? And we, in in fact, there is no answer. And why do some people's deaths and lives and losses and triumphs get to be immortalized in legends and others don't? And of course, that turned me right back to Arthur of just, this is uh, a legend that has just never gone away. This 
this person, this figure, and these images have just never gone away. So we keep talking about them. I think I went down a hole of who gets to be honored and recognized and whose deaths matter. And that led me to Arthur in a way that I said, okay, this is such a big conversation, actually. It's not just my family that I'm talking about. This is a book level Mm -hmm. discussion. That's where I landed with Arthur. And then I just ran with it. I mean, there's so much fun to be had. So I just sort of dove into it and decided to embrace a magic system and and that would make it sort of believable that Arthur had was a legend, but also was real and that that could have been carried forward into the modern day, which is slightly an homage back again to Susan Cooper because she did the same thing. Arthur was a story, but also real. Right. And I love the world building in your book where it's kind of like a secret society and kind of, you know, like a group of monster hunters, but also they're preparing for this epic battle that they don't know when it's going to come. And how did you kind of build all that out of the Arthurian mythos? I think I started out with some of the earlier writings like um, Lamort Arthur and um, Idols of the King. I think in both of those, there are a few lines um, with Tennyson in particular, where you get the sense that he's, that Arthur's fighting back beast. And I, I feel I'm not a Tennyson scholar, but I, I have a feeling some of those lines are very wrongly. So about people, but there's this idea that, you know, Arthur is out there protecting the world, not just from aspects of humanity, but also from monsters. Mm, Um, And I really, I landed on that and just couldn't shake it. But in terms of how sort of to make that work with secret societies, I went to a university that had tons of secret societies. It was a very old school. And you can (laughs) see Chapel Hill and they're all over the place. And everyone who is an undergraduate there is introduced to them by way of name or, you know, even you can find their names on the website. Um, Nobody knows how to get into them. That's why they're a secret society and not like a club or a frat. There's Mm -hmm. no public recruitment. There's a lot of lineage going on. There's a lot of generational power, legacies being passed and contained within those secret societies. It's mostly white dudes. I, it just seemed like that was how we could tie it all together. Like monster hunters who think a lot, quite a lot of themselves, but also have found a way to keep the table, quote unquote, pure in the modern day. One of the things that really jumps out of at me in your book is is the way that you kind of incorporate race into that. And like you have all these like little moments of microaggression, like when people make weird remarks about the society becoming more diverse or when they think that, you know, Brie is a caterer or whatever. And they're like, I want to talk to your manager. There's actually a literally I want to talk to your manager moment in the book, <laughs> which is just so perfect and so well observed. So how did this kind of become a story about race or how did race become part of this kind of telling? I call that person Umbrella Karen because uh, (laughs) the person who asked Brie to hold an umbrella because um, a reader told me that that was what they called them. And I was like, that is totally an Umbrella Karen. So there's Karens in the book for sure. UNC Chapel Hill, like a lot of schools, uh, was built by enslaved people. Uh, Mm -hmm. If I grew up in the South, in the South, the question that I was asking at the beginning of the book of whose lives and loss do we remember, whose deaths get memorialize, you know, that question is in the air in the American South at all times. It's really a part of how we live um, in the buildings that we walk through, the grounds that we travel over, the towns that we see. I mean, and it just seems so obvious to me that if I was going to set a book in the South and a book that asks those types of questions, I couldn't ignore how that impacts a Black girl 
how that impacts Black people. So my challenge to myself and really to the genre of contemporary fantasy was what if we walked you know, forward hand in hand, contemporary on one side and fantasy on the other. And if I could use that genre to really explore power wherever it shows up, whether or not that's, you know, tools of oppression or magical power, if I could do that at the same time and have those conversations, you know, go back and forth, then I feel like, you know, I would be able to to really push the genre forward, but also honor the place that I live and honor the fact that all of that's in the air now. And those are heavy questions and those are, they're very real. And why wouldn't they be there at the same time? It would be, it would be me sort of ignoring reality if I had Brie move through that space and have no microaggressions at all. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Part of what I love about the book is that Brie doesn't feel like a chosen one. She feels like she's just determined to make sense of this mystery in her life. And she's just kind of fighting to be a part of this thing that kind of is actively resisting her. And since King Arthur is the original chosen one story, why did you choose to kind of make the main character, you know, who's a wonderful character into, into kind of not a chosen one? I think that Brie had to be there for her own personal reasons at all times and not be drawn into the world for the shiny, for the people, not for the adventure, not for the monster hunting. And I think that that actually is partly why this particular book resonates on more than a King Arthurian sort of level on more than a than a Arthurian bandwidth or what have you, because Bree's really not there for King Arthur. And it just seemed like that was the that was a way for me to get into the story and not set her up to be part of a mythos that the reader was already approaching the book with. Your book is one of two YA books about King Arthur that I've really loved in the past year or so, the other being The Sword in the Stars by Amy Rose Capetta and Corey McCarthy. And in both cases, they're kind of genre mashups, like Sword of the Stars is obviously King Arthur plus space opera, but yours feels like King Arthur plus, I don't know, a little bit Buffy, a little bit like other kinds of, you know, contemporary fantasies about monster hunters and about like secret groups of monster hunters. Why is it cool or why is it, why is it kind of a natural thing to kind of take the King Arthur story and mash it up with other stories? When we look at the King Arthur stories, we find all the little sort of gems and nuances and or embers, and if you sort of blow on them in any one direction, the, uh, the stories become quite flexible. So I, I feel like people, and I, when I say people, any of us who are working in Arthuriana and trying to contribute something new to the corpus of this fifteen hundred year old fanfic, um, <laughs> we're we're pulling the drawer open and we're looking at all the different pieces because you can't write an all you know inclusive. There is no like all inclusive day spa Arthuriana. Like it's impossible to touch all of the different iterations of of Arthur and all the different mm-hmm. iterations of the night. So I think we, we do what we can. We open the drawer, we look through, we pull out pieces we like, put them in the proportion we do. And then if you are really into this idea of the the warriors working together against a force bigger than the nation, bigger than their families, bigger mm-hmm. than the village nearby, then it makes total sense that genre would make that into uh, an evil force or, or, you know, like with Buffy, just like a, an evil group of people slash monsters that, you know, are coming at us. But if you're really into this idea of leadership and that theme, what does it mean to be a leader? And how do you, how do you embrace that? Then Arthur can be very much adapted to like a sort of 
a colonial story if that's where you're going, which of course can happen a lot in genre. A superhero story. Or a superhero Mm -hmm. story, an immigrant story. You know, like I think if you pick any one of these things and just sort of push on them a little bit, um, then they fit so nicely with the genre that we're already, you know, with the rise of genre in the last, you know, 20 years. That's super interesting. I we already asked you which Arthurian characters that you'd like to see more of, and I wonder if to finish us up, you could tell us if you had millions of dollars to make your own Arthur movie, what would it be like? Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> We've just showered you with like you millions of dollars. Like you know, you're going to get special effects done by like Peter Jackson. It's going to be amazing. I mean, my instinct is just like you said to to make it not about Arthur. I would think I would I would do some sort of collection of various Arthurs. So maybe a little bit time traveling. Maybe this is a little bit Doctor Whoy. But like I think I, I would like pull that. from different eras of Arthurs and really <sighs> have them come together and like be able to to put a to make that the study, but also, you know, there's all sorts of narrative possibilities if you have multiple Arthurs in a room and not just Arthur, but other characters too. I really want to see all the different groups. Oh my God, that is perfect. (laughs) I I really want to see this movie now. Yeah, that would be amazing. Oh my God. I feel like this is like like, kind of, you know, like an art house flick almost, (laughs) like where all the Arthurs are like, it's like, well, I'm the bruiser Arthur. Like, well, I'm the thoughtful Arthur. (laughs) Yes. But like, if Arthur keeps coming back from the dead over and over again, you could have like 15th century Arthur and 18th century Arthur and like 25th century Arthur, like super like space Arthur. Yes, space Arthur. I want to have like the Moorish Arthur who's like, hello. Like, yes. yes, we were black in the Middle Ages. Yeah, <laughs> all the different Merlins. I mean, I would just love to, I feel like there's probably something in there where we just, because we keep talking about how it's meta. So let's mm-hmm. just lean hard into that. Yes, for sure. I am there. I am ready for full meta Arthur. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking yeah, to us about, you. you know, the past 1500 years in fanfic. And so looking forward to your book. Um, where can people find your book and where can people find you online? I'm at Tracy Dion, T-R-A-C-Y-D-E-O-N-N um, on Instagram and Twitter and TracyDion.com. And if you go to my website, then there are links for uh, Legendborn. Um, there may be a link up to find a signed copy when this, by the time this episode airs. Not sure. Yay! <laughs> so worth awesome. it. Yeah, and it, it, it will be out by the time you're listening to this. Yay. Excellent. Okay, everybody, go get that book. It's so freaking great. It will totally save you from like despair. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us in all the places that podcasts are found, you know, in the trees, in the gutters, in the, in the stone. In the stone. You can find us in the stone. Just find us everywhere. You know, if you like us, please support us on Patreon. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct if you really like us please leave a review on apple podcasts and other places that you can leave reviews and thanks so much to our heroic and brilliant producer veronica simonetti and to chris palmer for the music and thanks once again to you for listening you are the best thank you we'll be back in two weeks bye